Managed services is one of the fastest growing revenue streams in the technology industry. Here is one definition of a managed service provider. A third-party guarantee company that distantly manages a customer's information technology, IT support, and user systems. What does that really mean? Today, we are going to shine a light on what it means to provide managed services in today's technology industry. I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. Let's get this insight engine humming. Today, I'm joined by Peter Lacoste from Dell. Welcome to Tectonic, Peter. And can you explain a little bit about your role at Dell and, and tell us a little bit about how long you've been working in the world of managed services? Well, g'day, Thomas. It's great to be here with you again today. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to spend time with you on, on the podcast. I've been with Dell now for uh, coming up to 26 years wow. as, as part of a uh, a journey via acquisition um, and have been running managed services for the last 16 years. So almost half of my time in the industry has been on the managed services side yeah. of, uh, of life. It's been pretty exciting. Where were you before managed services? What, what, you know, what were you doing then and then went into that? Prior to managed services, I, I led our whole services business, running our Asia, Pacific, and Japan business, Okay, where I was responsible for consulting, professional service, customer service, and our managed service portfolio at that time, Okay, and pre-sales. So it was a, a really exciting role across mm-hmm. multiple dimensions and multiple towns, but it was actually through that experience that we secured our first banking customer in the Asia-Pacific region. Mm-hmm. And the pursuit of a managed service is very different to traditional services sales. Yeah. And I was really excited by that journey. And uh, it ultimately led to me accepting the responsibility for the global managed services business at the time. Interesting. So you had you know, the, the journey. Yeah, you had the broader view of you know the t- traditional services and sales motions within a hardware company and then you get kind of dragged into a managed service opportunity by a customer right it was which is that happens a lot to hardware companies right the customer knocks on the door says hey could you do something more for me and the next thing you know 26 years later <laughs> you know you, this is this is what you do so i want to help the audience here so this is the first time we tackled this topic on tectonic I think in general, there is a lot of confusion regarding managed services. And so from your perspective, what is a managed service and how is it different from traditional outsourcing? Because that's where I think people get most confused, right? Oh, you're just talking about outsourcing and, and we're not really talking about traditional outsourcing. So so help the audience understand what it is. Yeah. And, and as you know, Thomas, uh, those two words tend to get used interchangeably a yeah. lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many of the traditional outsourcing really came in in the late late 2000 era and companies were you know, really struggling call it the dot-com boom it gone bust and at that particular time companies were really trying to reduce their cost and mm-hmm. it continued to explode um, and, and really was underfunded so one avenue to solve the problem was to outsource to a provider who would absorb all of the cost of delivering the services yep. many times that included the data center and the infrastructure as well and so these big holistic deals that were extremely contractually intense yeah. uh, created what was known as the outsourcing era but the downside of the outsourcing era was that customers gave away more than just the services they really gave away their innovation 
and their ability to control their innovation agenda because much of what was their core competency was now transferred to the provider. Mm -hmm. So as a result, many customers actually lost ground whilst they were able to save money. They lost ground and they accumulated a great deal of organizational debt. Managed services was the next step to really resolve those challenges. Mm -hmm. So typically, they are more focused engagements. They are a shared risk model where the customer and the vendor uh, collaborate on an outcome that allows both parties to achieve objectives. The Mm -hmm. client gets a level of innovation that's in line with their strategic agenda, and the vendor is very neatly tied into that at an appropriate level of cost and value. So, you know, I see them quite different. I think it's really important that the shared risk aspect of a managed service is, is maintained in balance because whenever it gets you know, out of balance, you know, typically it's not a good ending for either the company providing the service or the customer consuming that service. Yeah, and I, you know, and at traditional outsourcing, you know, I think the mantra there always was your mess for less. You know, whatever you're spending on IT on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis, we'll take over all that spaghetti and we'll just run it, you know, at a lower cost point. And that was the value proposition. But to your point, you kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater with that. And and, yeah. and when IT or technology starts to become a critical competency for almost every company, that is less attractive then, right? Because like you said, you're, you, you've kind of lost complete control. In managed services, and you know, we've been researching this for years. We did a paper several years ago called Your Mess for More. And, and the managed services is really, like you said, much more targeted. We have a very specific value proposition here. And by getting the customer into a managed posture, we can unlock value as opposed to them, you know, running certain aspects of their environment on their own. So, and by the way, one of the fastest growing revenue streams in tech for several years, uh, you know, hardware companies have obviously been getting into this. We now see software companies having something they call managed SaaS. So you could be, this is, you know, seems kind of bizarre, but you're a SaaS company and you say, well, all the infrastructure is already in the cloud. What's there to manage, but customers still have administrative issues, ads, moves, changes, all that kind of fun stuff. And they're turning to their SaaS providers and saying, hey, can you manage some of that for me? And that's a classic managed service conversation. So it continues to be a really important offering a really important arrow in the quiver, I think, of most technology providers. And one of the things I want to click into is pricing. Because again, people are are probably very familiar with pricing support services or professional service engagement. And when it comes to managed services, we do research here, we test for the following five approaches for managed service pricing. There's cost plus, you know, here's my cost for the engagement, put some margin on top of it. There's market-based where you just look at what competitors are charging for the same offer. There's value-based where you hang on some type of value realization for the customer and you work your price based on that. There's outcome-based where you are, you know, you start with some specific business outcome that you're going to unlock. It could be some KPI improvements, whatever. And if you attain that, then you get paid. And then there's even some models where people take a percentage of the product list price. So, hey, you're going to buy X amount of hardware software from me. We'll put a percentage on top of that to manage the environment. So several different models in play. Um, we know from the research that, that you know, cost plus pricing, most common way to do it, right? Obviously, the easiest way to do it. Um, and that's why people gravitate to it. But but why do you think that that's still what managed service providers gravitate to, that cost plus model? What's the rationale there? 
I think there's a number of reasons why that be the case. And maybe one of the foundation reasons is that many of the companies have evolved from professional services or consulting into managed. So So the foundation is, is already established. And I think the second reason is that to truly build a set of outcome-based services and then to codify the supply chain in order to to adapt some of the other value-based or outcome-based models that you mentioned mm-hmm. is actually a big investment, right? One, you have to actually standardize the offer. Yeah. Uh, two, you then have the tools and technology that allow you to put that offer into a standard pricing system yep. that produces an outcome mm-hmm. uh, consistently. Yeah. And then so you actually end up with an as-sold value and then you have to measure your delivery against the as-delivered version. Mm-hmm. And often those two things will, will vary. But what you're ultimately trying to do is, is match the cost to deliver with what you're selling to market. So I, I think that's really what drives the fact that so much of the buildup of the offering is cost-based. It's tools, it's technology, it's people, and it's process and how you package that together yep. uh, and then present to the client becomes the core of the, of the pricing model. Yeah. Well, and one of the challenges with cost plus pricing always, and you know, but especially in today's environment as costs go up with inflation, et cetera, is, you know, you're trying to stack that margin on top of these costs, which may be getting higher. And you're always going to get pressure from the customer pushing down on that, right? Pushing, pushing down. And so what other pricing approaches do you feel have the greatest potential for, for managed service offers? If you're not going to do cost plus, what would you jump to? Look, that is a really difficult question because mm-hmm. it depends on so much of the commitment to the model that you're driving. If you take you know, my current responsibilities for a cloud services company, we have developed our pricing methodology around outcomes that we're mm-hmm. delivering to the client. Yep. Those outcomes are measured in terms of availability, okay. uh, serviceability, so the uptime and the quality of the performance of the platform. Mm-hmm. and the capacities that are under management. So if the client has a, a large data set with a heavy amount of um, server and network requirements, you know, obviously the scale out of the cost has to work with that. So we've, we've really worked on codifying all the elements so that as the customer varies in size, we can automatically generate those outcomes. Mm-hmm. So we've moved from cost plus into a value-based model. However, in order to be at a value base, you better understand your cost. Yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. so you have to really refine the serviceability and then focus on continued innovation around your automation of the supply chain. Because if you don't, your costs will continue to exceed the rate that the clients are prepared to pay. And, and that is one of the difficult challenges we face in the industry today. You know, with the you know, current economic outlook, customers are trying to transfer more of their risk mm-hmm. and the providers are in many cases willing to accept that risk to a reason but balancing your risk and your reward requires a very strong understanding of the cost base well an understanding of the risk itself i mean you're absolutely right i mean this, today's managed services is about sharing risk with the customer right i mean we work together hopefully to get these outcomes but you and if you're going to move off of cost plus pricing to commit to some kind of outcome you clearly are taking on risk because the outcome may not happen. Yeah. So to do that, I mean, you put a couple things on the table there. Hey, you better understand your cost structure because <laughs> you can commit to an outcome, but then to deliver it, it may cost you so much money. You're losing, you're losing money on that commitment. And then secondly, you have to have a high degree of confidence 
that you can consistently deliver that outcome. And not, not just understanding the cost, but you're like, hey, I know I can get it. I know what it takes to deliver that. And, and so it's a different order of magnitude in terms of really understanding the environment, the processes, the technology, everything involved. But if you can climb there, right, you, you create a different value conversation you know, with the customer for sure. Yeah, just to that point, Thomas, I think one of the, the big advances that I think we've made in the industry of managed services over the last you know, X number of years is customers have become a lot clearer on what their expectations are, probably as the maturity of the managed services market has actually increased. Mm-hmm. We know what the variables are, right? So, yep. for example, if you're providing a infrastructure service to a client, you know, you know its capacity, its performance, its network throughput, and so on. So the, the, the variables are quite contained. Mm-hmm. The services that go with those aspects around data center management, service desk, or all the necessary components can also be mapped based on volumes of expected outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. So ultimately, you can then say, right, well, I've got a storage offer, I've got a compute offer, I've got a network offer, I've got an application offer that focuses on application A or B or C. Now you're creating the building blocks that have very defined cost units, and you can package them up. And the amount of variable scope or the customization of the deal now becomes a lot less because all of the foundation is clear. So it's the integration with the customer that induces the most amount of risk Mm -hmm. and obviously the most variability on a scale basis, on a daily basis. So that to me is where I think, you know, the value-based outcome is about having a good foundation that's structured on predictable cost Mm-hmm. predictable performance, yep. and then ultimately closing the gap on customization on the front end. Because that is the reason most companies can't go from cost plus models yep. to outcome-based models is because of the variability or the customization of the deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're on a really important thread here because, again, we've been benchmarking MS organizations for years. And when you look at that data, there's massive variance in the profitability, the gross margin profile of managed service businesses. And that variability is almost always driven by the difference between being bespoke and standard, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah. And which is exactly what you're on, right? If you go into every customer and you treat them like a snowflake and everything you're doing for them is a one-off, it's very difficult to scale that MS business and be profitable. However, like you said, if you have building blocks that you're using again and again and again, and the only variance now is obviously, you know, each customer environment can have a little bit of difference, but the majority of what you're doing is very standard. George Humphrey coined this phrase, you know, I'm sure you know it, you know, years ago, when it comes to your MS portfolio, it should be 80-24. 80% of what you're doing should be completely standard. Yeah. 20% can be custom, but that's actually off of a standard menu, right? You know, you basically yes. say you can pick, you know, choice A or choice B, and then 20% of that custom, which now is 4% of the total solution, might truly, truly be unique to that customer. But you're down to a very small piece of the pie there, right? And that's, we know, the winning model for profitability Absolutely. in this environment. And I think it takes a lot of, you know, a discipline, obviously, to do that. You know, this whole thing on pricing, though, you know, cost-based versus value-based, this is a, still remains a hot topic. Uh, we're doing a research journey on how these pricing models are changing. And I'm just curious, do you see any variances in pricing approaches either by geography, you know, the certain geographies like a certain approach, or even customer segment? Or is it pretty much a standard uh, pricing methodology you're using across 
customers, which is what your experience is. I know you deal globally. Yeah. Our business is global and our business does vary across a number of segments, both your industry segments, think of manufacturing or financial services, telco, uh, but also across commercial segments. So large enterprise, small mm-hmm. enterprise, yep. uh, global companies. And, and I do think each of those different dimensions increases the complexity of your pricing model. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, for example, think of your world's largest banks, yep. right? Mm-hmm. They are going to have a very high degree of expectation around certain attributes of a deal mm-hmm. that will be very different to what a small to medium enterprise customer sure. is looking for. Yeah, yeah, right. So there's there's a certain add-on of workload that comes with that. Mm-hmm. So how do you accommodate that in your pricing model? Right, you have to think about those things. Yeah. Uh, so the eighty percent standardized absolutely works on the standard business process. Mm-hmm. But now, how do you manage the variables? How do you manage that integration that you may have to do with the client's ticketing system or their business process in the application space? Yeah. Those things are hard, and so a lot of the time customers are outsourcing or looking for managed services providers to really bring innovation and to help them force the company to move past their current paradigm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where you can introduce. We're fortunate now to have some fairly impressive industry tools that are widely adopted, mm-hmm. right? And as a result of that, a common ticketing system becomes very easy to mandate as part of your offer. Okay. I'm not going to integrate with every flavor of yeah. you know, IT service management system that's around and been around for 20 or 30 years. I'm only my standard offer integrates with you know, ServiceNow or whoever. If you want a variable to that, well, that's a significant cost yeah. impediment for right. everyone, the for client everyone. and vendor. Yeah. Is it really what you want? Is it really what you need? Yeah. More importantly, so I do think it's important to recognize the differences in geography of commercial markets and also industry markets as you work through your developing your offers. So as I hear you tell that that story there, I mean, I'm just curious, when you engage with companies around, you know, coming in and providing a managed service offer, is it an accelerator to help them work through some of their technical debt? Because you're going to bring sort of best in class recommendations on how to do some of the processes, on some of the system interfaces. So you're going to sort of force the issue and say, like, I mean, you know, the help desk ticket it could be an example. They say, well, we've got this homegrown thing that we did, you know, 15 years ago and we've been using it. And, and you come in and you say, hey, to really get you to the next level, you, you really need to make some choices here, right? And, and refresh some yeah. of your infrastructure, plus we're going to, you know, leverage ours. So do you see people using your managed services to accelerate sort of their own digital transformation? Oh, absolutely. I'd say 80% of the deals are actually innovation-driven. Yeah, that's what uh, I was And 20% of them are your mess for less, if you like, traditional yeah, okay. kind of deals. Yeah, they're just trying to help uh, and, get their costs down, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I think if the balance is not – if the balance is the other way around, I, I don't like that model. I, I don't want to be in that model. I'm not yeah. interested in trying to support someone's five- or ten-year-old technology strategy. Right, right. And, and it's not that I'm not interested – I'm interested in helping them with that strategy. Mm -hmm. And the best way to help them is actually to progress them to a modern architecture to support their business. You know, if you're in the financial services industry or manufacturing industry, you want to be putting all your investment into the core competency that makes that business a success. You know, R&D, the manufacturing supply chain, all those aspects become really important to a manufacturer. The IT team supporting and enabling it 
is a cost of doing business. Now, it is a digital world, so it's a very essential cost. But I would think that if you're a builder of cars or financial services company, the real value is the outcomes you're delivering. So almost all managed services deals are about resolving technical debt for customers Mm -hmm. and bringing innovation and capability that does not exist inside the warehouse. Because they've got to invest into their core competencies that differentiate them from their competitors. And that's what MS providers really bring to the table. Yeah. So I want to flip the coin around now. So because I think there's some really compelling value propositions that MS offers can take to the marketplace that they can help a technology provider climb the value ladder with their customers. But you know this as well as anybody out there. MS has a tendency to break the systems of a traditional product company, right? And so to get to yeah. the, you know, like like you're talking about the systems required to do these things. So how important is it, you know, to have the right accounting methodologies and systems and everything else to support the pricing models, uh, the administration of contracts, which are multiple, you know, it could be three years, could be five years. And so again, a traditional product company, which is make, sell, ship, make, sell, ship. And then you have, oh, here's a five-year contract now. So talk a little bit about that journey. Well, for me personally, that journey started 16 years ago. And it it goes on. Oh, it does. And and it started, you know, true story. I mean, it started 16 years ago. And the charter that I took on at that time when I accepted the global role was to build a managed service business and – basically embody as a service, as a standard across our company. Mm-hmm. And we knew that it was early in market at that time. Yeah, But we knew that over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, as the world moved towards modern cloud technologies, it would force modern commercial models mm-hmm. to also evolve. Yeah, yeah. So when we started to build out the managed service business and especially our cloud business, we saw it as a business transformation, not just an offer transformation. Yep. Yeah. Um, a, you know, a, a development transformation because we had to rethink how we develop offers. And you now thinking about them from end to end. It's not just about the service that you're right. delivering. How does that now fit into the overall workflow that supports that service being delivered to the customer? Yep. So how do I track utilization, build that utilization? Uh, what components go with it, what's the tools architecture supporting it. All of these cost components need to be factored in and controlled as part of that offer outcome in an as-a-service world. So you end up having almost as much focus on the how you do the work as well as how you control the work with yep. the IT systems and policies that go with it. You, know, you then introduce the whole spectrum of a five-year, five-year deal with capital investments yep with risk and obligations to a client and you have to have a pretty sophisticated services sales team that can negotiate those types of contracts and not expose you to great liability with limited controls. Yeah. And I want to talk about the sales piece next, because again, watching traditional product company go through this journey of, I want to start doing managed services, I think, and by the way, when we talked about it earlier, it usually starts with a knock on the door from the customer. It's, you know, yeah. it's, you know that's, yeah. what, that's how it starts, right? It's always a very important customer says, I want to be in a different relationship with you. Could you step up? Could you help manage this environment? You know, could you add some additional value here? Very rarely, in fact, maybe never does a 
the traditional product company just jump into that, you know, on their own, right? They get dragged in. But then once you're you're in, you realize, hey, there is some interesting value here and some revenue and margin, all that good stuff. Then you got to really think through the systems and the infrastructure to support it. But then as you really want to scale it, you need an effective go-to-market engine. And so, yeah. so how do you, because again, if you have a sales force that's used to saying, look, I sell product, I sell product, it's transactional. And now, you know, you're asking people to negotiate complex three to five year deals. I mean, that's not going to be their DNA, right? That's not going to be their skill set no. initially. So how, how have you found the best way to, to evolve the sales force? Yeah. I mean, look, if, when you're a product company and you deliver supporting services or we call them attached services, mm-hmm. You're, that's your core competency, right? Yeah. And then when a customer asks you to be a managed service provider, it challenges you in many ways. You're no longer a book, build, and ship company. You have to think about how do you amortize those investments over time? You know, how do you recover those costs and, and profitability? You have to think about the legal contracts. And then when you, you start to get to the sales teams, well, what we chose, and I think what I would argue is a best practice is that you have to bring in people that have experience in building and negotiating managed service contracts. And that's a balancing role, right? Because part of their job is doing business development, normal sales activity, mm-hmm. you know, hunting for opportunities, finding the right buyer, understanding the buyer's requirements, and then working out how to package the solution for them. But once you start to do that, you do that in conjunction with your traditional sales team. Mm-hmm. You've got someone on your shoulder that's now learning on those deals with you. So yeah. we never we never remove the existing salesperson from the account. Mm-hmm. So if we're working with one of the large global banks, the account team is in every one of the managed service meetings. They're yeah. learning about the offer. They're learning around the delivery model. They're learning about the commercial complexities. They're learning about the legal frameworks that mm-hmm. operate to operate in a successful way. So as a result, every deal we did actually created a new set of people that now had the skills to continue to evolve and work those deals. Mm-hmm. So the expand component of the relationship could be managed by the accounting. Mm-hmm. It didn't require the specialty BD to lead that effort. Yep. And that's a great way to naturally expand the internal skill cap- and capability of a sales team uh, with a specialty business development team. What I hear there, and this is what we you know we we see is if you're starting to incubate an MS capability and you get to the point where you say, hey, I want to you know scale it more, you're going to need yeah. some specialists, salespeople to help drive that initially because your existing sales channel is not going to be adept at at managing That's these right. deals. So you have to make that investment there. So you have these specialists out there, and every time they're out there and touching and working with an account then you are educating the existing account executives to be to be better there in terms of being able to expand, et cetera. I'm just curious, do you see though a bifurcation in the traditional sales force where some of the sales folks, you know, so let's say there's an MS deal in their account, they participate, they watch it and they get it and they go, hey man, I am off and running. Oh, this is great. You know, I can manage the expansion. And other salespeople, they sort of retrench, right? They into like, hey, I, okay, that's this MS thing over here. I'm just going to continue to focus on what I do, which is sell product or traditional services, whatever. Is there that bifurcation or or what do you typically see? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I I mean, in many cases, it's uh, the sales cycle is longer. Of course. Typically, the cycle for managed services is longer. It's more complex. You have to manage more stakeholders. Yeah. So it it is a lot more complexity. 
yeah, it's it's not easy. And some of the sales teams, they just feel more comfortable with their traditional selling model. Yeah. So why do I really need to step out of this? Yeah. Well, yeah. maybe competitive marketplace is forcing that. Yeah. But, you know, others, they gravitate toward it. Um, they're rewarded by the learning that comes with being involved in a managed service deal. And I think that teaches many of the uh, sales teams to actually work more effectively with the senior leadership of their customers. Sure. Because they're, they now bring more skills. They're more objective about what's the right more value, solution more for More value it. to the table. Yeah, right. Do, should I do a traditional purchase model with a lease or some other model? Should I do an as-a-service business? Should I package services with the products? Yeah. Right. It really helps to build a better IT executive relationship if you can open your mind to different ways of, of transacting with a customer. So I think it's impactful the way to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, the reason I was chipping on that one because as I was listening to you, you know, talk about the Salesforce enablement, it took me back to the days professional services was a relatively new capability for a lot of you know product companies, right. and it was the same thing, right? So you'd have this PS capability, and some of the sales reps would get it because they were like, "Hey, this is account control, this is more value," and they would become quickly very adept at helping to sell it and position it, and they were kind of off and running because they realized it represented revenue growth, but more importantly, sort of better account control. And other reps were just like, oh, that whole service thing, that just seems too complex. It's too, it's a longer contract to do a statement of work and they would just push it off. And so that bifurcation is very, continues to be real, right? It's just not, it's now MS, not PS anymore. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's interesting how that evolves. It really is. And, and you know, you always had the other argument. Well, we, we used to do it for free. Why, why are we charging for it now? Yeah. Oh, oh, geez. Oh man. I forgot about that one. I mean, it's, it's almost like the, you know, the classic, what's old is new again. It's like the same human physics conversations that we have here and it really and that is the pattern recognition it's something new and different from what they're yeah. they're they're comfortable doing and some people you know are going to lean into it and some people aren't right and that's it's the challenger and and so in, in that vein so as you're standing up an ms capability there are these other critical department interfaces. We talked about sales, but there's also the product team. It could be the support team. It could be the existing professional services team. So I'm going to put you on the spot. (laughs) What what relationship internally do you think is the most critical one for MS success? I think it's different at different stages of the organization's maturity. Okay. Okay. So when when I first accepted the managed service responsibility, it was an incubation business, mm-hmm. and we were really breaking new ground. Okay. And the key relationship was the CEO of the company. Oh, interesting. That they were supportive? He was my biggest sponsor. Yeah. And that was really important because he had to keep the CMO and the chief of sales and the financial controllers happy that what we were doing wasn't breaking their traditional go-to-market. Yep. Because you got to remember, at that time, 16 years ago, 100% of the revenue was coming from a different model. Yep. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah, absolutely was. The thought of changing it, disrupting it, uh, and making it more complex to sell a longer sales cycle, right, there's plenty of reasons why you wouldn't want to do this thing mm-hmm. called managed service. Yep. But there's a hell of a lot more reasons why you want to be getting into it but you have to do it over time. So it is changing the way organizations think mm-hmm. and you have to have CEO support or certainly the executive board needs to support the program. Yeah. Once you get momentum and then you start to actually have a, a viable business, I think at that point 
other things become more important. I think having a strong portfolio focus to ensure that as you continue to innovate your offerings, they're maturing, they're addressing the changing needs of the market, the changing needs of the associated products, Mm -hmm. the changing delivery models that are coming as a result of AI and other operational improvements. So I think the product management becomes a very, very important part and that relationship with engineering because what another way of saying it is, you know, the product has become a service because it's now an outcome. And the services become a product, right? They become one. Yeah, absolutely. You can't separate the two. Yeah. So those engineering and product management relationships become very, very key as well. Yeah. So, and I'll play back to you in terms of that executive level sponsorship. So one scenario that I see very common when it comes to product companies attempting to incubate MS. And again, this life cycle is if it starts with the customer knocks on the door, they're interested. You say, okay, fine. And there could be you know, an innovative sales team working with an innovative service leader, which is probably you and you're an APEC. And you say, hey, we can figure this out, right? Let's, let's figure this out. And so you, you get an offer together. You say, hey, we'll just, we'll pilot this, we'll experiment. And, yep. you know, you get it going and you say, hey, this is, you know, this is kind of interesting. And then maybe there's a second customer that knocks on the door, right? And it may be a third. And so you start sort of knocking these customers down. And if, if what happens is if there is not executive sponsorship, as that revenue starts to grow, the C-suite sort of, re, you know, the antibodies kick in, right? Because they basically say, where's my product revenue? <laughs> and you go, well, it's in this five-year contract, you know, over time. And they go, I, yeah. I don't want that, right? And so you, yeah. if you don't have a CEO saying, hey, I think this is an important venue for us, you know, an important, you know, offer, an important way for us to grow revenue. I think this is important for the marketplace. If they don't believe that, then ultimately this this business gets squashed. That's exactly because they want to go back to the transactional side. And then, you know, your second point about then the product interface is you grow that business. If the product team is off in a silo and they have a completely tin ear to the your needs on the MS side, it becomes a huge handicap. Because you're like, hey, we need this serviceability. We need, you know, we need this telemetry coming off the product. We need this, you know, and they're like, well, that's not important because I'm over here chasing other features for these traditional customers. Eventually, that's a really tough thing to overcome in terms of making the MS business, you know, profitable. So it's, it's, I mean, those patterns, I think, are just so common as companies go through this. And a lot of product companies do not get through those two knot holes. They don't get the executive sponsorship. And they don't get the product team on board and they ultimately end up with sort of an anemic or unprofitable MS business because of that, which is a shame because there's some real there there, right, that the company could be taken advantage of. Yeah, you summed it up perfectly. If you don't enable the managed service to be successful, it won't be. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's a huge commitment. And you can overcome – yeah, you can can overcome – the fact that not having good product management focus means that you are increasing the cost to deliver. Yep. That just means you're eroding your operating income. <laughs> exactly. And if yeah. you continue to erode that operating income, I remember you taught me something once many years ago, which is the, if I get it wrong correctly, yeah. unsustainable business models 
right. are unsustainable. That's right. <laughs> and it, and it proved itself time and time again. <laughs> it's proving itself today right now with these SaaS companies. <laughs> it's it coming, is indeed. Yeah, it's coming home to roost. Well, th- I mean, this has been a great conversation and I think an introduction to a lot of people in the audience here about what managed services is. And again, we've been tracking this for years and, and our perspective is it's not going away. Right, these managed offers, and, and, and we talked about earlier. But again, SaaS companies now putting managed offers on the table is becoming a real thing. So there's a whole new, you know, set of product providers that are getting in this business. So it's real. I think there's a lot of value that you can deliver to customers through this mechanism. But as we've been talking, it takes a real commitment to get everything lined up behind it to enablement. It's not like you can just, it's like leasing. Well, they're just leasing my my stuff now. It's no big deal. No, this is not leasing. <laughs> this is a totally different yeah. level of commitment, but there's a lot of there there. So thanks for sharing your wisdom. I greatly appreciate it because um, I know, again, you've been chipping at this for, for many years. And I like to end always with the question of the day. So for today, managed services is a bridge to growing recurring revenues. That's a fact. Are you willing to cross that bridge? Cheers.